Welcome back, everybody, to the Electric Priest Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McInerney, and this week I am talking with the wonderful Holly Mandel. Now, Holly is a fantastic improviser and teacher. She started her career with the Groundlings in LA, and she's now set up her own school, Improvolution, in New York. I did a workshop with Holly in London, and it was so much fun, and it was really fascinating. She really gets into like the how to develop characters, how to get into a character. We talk about it all in the podcast. It's fascinating. But it was so nice chatting with her and kind of going through how she started her career with the Groundlings and how she developed. So without further ado, here's my chat with Holly Mandel. Holly, how did you get into performing? Performing? Oh my gosh. Uh, I think I was one of those people who, those obnoxious, horrible people who always liked to... Uh, It'd be the center of attention, but it's funny. I think I, I'd be curious if you're similar, but as a kid, I was quite shy, but I remember at one point realizing that I could make people laugh and that felt really nice. I think that was like third grade or something. Um, And so I, I feel like that was a connection to uh, people connecting with others and and stuff like that. But I think uh, performing wise, I liked doing it in high school. I was in all those ridiculous high school plays. Uh, Give us an example. uh, Oh, I was in, um, well, I couldn't sing, which was really sad because all the fun parts were singing parts, but I was in, uh, you can't take it with you. Do you know that play? You can't take it with you. I'm not familiar with that one. No, it's kind of a, an American, it's an American classic, Sean. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's, yes, well, uh, and then, uh, I played, oh, I can't even remember. Isn't that terrible? But yeah, that was a fun one. And I played, do you know the play Picnic? That's yeah, another just, American you, classic. You're just going to keep naming all these plays just to shame me. Because <laughs> I don't know. I'm they're sorry, really, no. they're bad. They're, they're stupid, like from the forties and fifties, nothing cutting edge whatsoever, you know, but fun. <laughs> and, uh, did you, did it, did it click with you then that, yeah, this is what I want to be doing with my life or was it just, yeah, I, I thought that was fun, but it's not something I consider myself doing. Yeah. I think, um, I think I didn't make a concrete choice of like, I'm going to do this forever. I remember there was a phase where I thought I was going to be the next Barbara Streisand. And then I remember realizing, oh, but I can't sing. How's that going to work? So that was um, a big barrier for you, was it? Yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I know. Apparently I, I'm bringing this up. Are you a therapist, Sean? <laughs> this is it. This is the sideline of the podcast. I, it's very therapeutic. Breakdown moment. Um, but yeah, I think I just always enjoyed that. And that's what led me out to LA. And, and I think I thought I'd get into film, uh, maybe behind the scenes almost, um, doing film and uh, being involved in production. And then I remember, do you know that book, The Artist's Way? Did that make its yeah, way over there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I did The Artist's Way when I was in college. And one of the things in there, or right after college, I guess, when I was working in, um, I was working at Disney Studios in production. Well, and on. one of the so you, you went to college. What did you do at college? I studied. Uh, I thought I was going to study film and theater, and um, uh, ooh, this is going to sound really mean, but it was quite douchey. The program was quite douchey. <laughs> the people who were doing it, you know, if you can imagine Hollywood and L.A. Yeah. and then the film school, it just had this gross. I don't know. It just was. It was already kind of gross. So it was just a guy um, in the corner with slick hair and a cigar. Exactly. Going, you want to be a star, don't you? <laughs> That's exactly it. Like my uncle is Steven Spielberg's DP, and 
it just was so gross and it just turned me off. But luckily I found a sociology class and it blew my mind because I'd never studied uh, what was behind the, what were the forces at play that made people the way they were? Wow. So you experienced a douchey environment and then wanted to understand why it was a douchey environment. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I just I just did a 180 and I was like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with these programs. And so I just took this class, I think, because you had to uh, take a, some sort of social science class. And it was an intro to sociology and it just opened my world. Um, and interestingly, I think I picked the right uh, major because I I think people who do improv and I'm assuming you would agree with this but we can chat about it um, <laughs> we're really interested in people and understanding mm. people and I think we're very fluid in terms of us being able to play other people and understand what motivates them and um, so I think that sociology psychology place is probably what we're all attracted to anyway. Wow. So you, you finished your sociology degree and then you're working at Disney Studios. How does that happen? Um, because my dad knew somebody in the business. <laughs> nepotism. <laughs> Healthy dose of nepotism. Douchey. I'm telling you, it's douchey. The whole thing's douchey. Um, but I was really into film and I got an assistant job and you kind of work your way up. And so I was working at Disney Studios and I had seen an improv show at this place called The Groundlings in Los Angeles. Yeah. And world it famous had Groundlings. World yeah, famous. So casually. Well, some people, I don't know. I don't know how well it's well known. But yeah, it was the only thing in town. I think the only other school that existed at that time was Second City in Chicago. They were the, the two places. I didn't know that though at the time. And I saw the show and I remember they had the sketches, which were great. But then they did this thing that I'd never seen before called improv. Mm. And I saw adults running around on stage and I laughed so hard. My dad said, I literally fell out of my seat. I was sitting on the aisle <laughs> and I fell onto the steps because I'd never seen any adults act that way in my life. I didn't, they weren't adults, but they weren't kids. They were this thing. They were having so much fun and it made me laugh so hard. Um, I never forgot that feeling. So as I was working at Disney Studios, climbing the ladder to a BMW and a big house <laughs> and job security and healthcare, all those things, yeah. I started taking class at the Groundlings and I was like, oh, wait a minute, I love this and I know how to do this. It actually comes quite naturally. It was very strange. Why? And what year would this have been? Like, uh, would this have been like what? This was in the 90s, like the mid mid to late 90s. So, um, so sorry, I, I was just going to say like, so Groundlings was very much on the map at this point. And, you know, they'd had a lot of alumni go to second uh, to Saturday Night Live. You know what? Not quite yet. It was oh, interesting really? that you say that. Yeah. Um, Phil Hartman made the leap, but it still wasn't, I don't know. I don't think people looked at the Groundlings as a career path. But while I was in there, Will Ferrell got in, and then Sherry O'Terry got in, and Chris Kattan all got in at the same yeah, time. Quite or a right few around. one time, I remember reading that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And as soon as that hit, um, everything changed at the Groundlings, and probably for improv, also. I think. Yeah, I think people were, became a lot. Well, well, with that, and then so many coming from Second City to Saturday Night Live as well. I think between the two, yep. people yep. were like, okay there's something in this improv <laughs> you know, you've got to look into this a bit more yes but, uh, you're right exactly so were you still a student or had you graduated by the time all that was kind of kicking off 
I was still in the school, but I was getting to the point where um, it was time to decide if I was going to make this my life choice. Because up until then, um, you know, the school wasn't as competitive because it was this weird side thing. Like, uh, you know, your goal was to become a groundling and stay a groundling and teach and do shows and just kind of live your life and probably do commercials and maybe a sitcom every once in a while, or maybe write. But it was just, that was the goal is to become a groundling and probably make your money doing other things. Okay. Um, so and just, I just, was really happy. So sorry. Yeah, no, go. I, I was just curious, like, obviously I would love to know more about what it was like as a student. So you go into level one, mm. it's three levels, mm-hmm. right? It's level one, two, and three. Is that right? Well, at the time, there were only two improv levels. Back in the day, Sean, um, <laughs> there were we took our horses. as far as you could see. <laughs> exactly. And uh, there was, uh, you still had to audition because I think there were people that just weren't uh, cut out for it. Let's just put that nicely. Oh, that still happens um, now, Dora. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, but there were no other options for them at the time. And now if people don't make the audition, you know, you can do some of the less professional classes, which is really nice. People who are like, I don't want to do this for a living. I just want to have fun. Oh, but wow. at the time it was, mm-hmm. and our school does that as well, but we'll get there. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, so you'd audition and then you got to level one, which was all basic improv. And then if you moved up, so it's a very much a pass, repeat or fail system at the groundlings and uh then i got into level two which was where they introduced character and mindy sterling was my teacher and she was the one who was at austin powers um she's incredible she uh is still one of the greatest character improvisers in the world i would say easily and i was so honored to have her as my teacher and that was the joy of being in the theater at the time um the groundlings that you all saw every week in on stage were your teachers there was that's how it worked wow. so um, was that was that intimidating or was that like i want to learn as much as possible from this person I never felt intimidated. I mean, my memory is I didn't feel intimidated. My memory was I felt very inspired and um, I knew I found my tribe. So to be able to go into class and learn from the person doing it on stage just felt incredible. Um, And again, because it wasn't a a fame machine and it just didn't feel, I don't know, it just didn't feel intimidating in general. Um, The vibe was they wanted to help you learn it. And if you needed to repeat, you would repeat. Um, I don't know. I, I I don't know if that makes any sense, but it just didn't have this rat race vibe. No, no, I get you. So it wasn't like, right, I have to do these levels, then I get onto the main stage, you know, then I'm in a movie. It's more, I want to learn yeah. this craft. I want to develop yeah. this. I want to join this organization. I want to... Be- yeah, exactly. So you wanted the best teachers because you knew you'd learn it from them directly and... Um, And so after the second level, then they introduced their writing program. And I was like, well, I'm done. That's going to be the end of me because I never thought of myself as a writer and I didn't see the connection. (laughs) I don't know. I think I had some idea in my head of what a writer was like. And to be honest, I think as a female, I just didn't think women were... I didn't see a lot of women comedy writers. I didn't see that on television very much. It just felt... um, I, I just assumed I didn't have the skill set to that's, write. That's really sad to hear that, obviously, you know, 
Because how many women were made to feel like that at that time? You know what I mean? It's just... I wonder. I wonder. I know. It's true. And and I think to not have that encouragement young when you're younger, um, I think you don't realize how much that means something to be like, oh, you could be a writer. Just to have been told that um, it would have made, who knows what difference that would have made. But anyway, I just assumed I didn't have... Yeah, and it's it's an interesting point, and I I wonder if you find this too. Being an improviser, there's a healthy dose of insecurity and humility that I think an improviser has to have. Mm. Oh yeah, because I think yeah. you know what I mean. Like we're oh, all a little. <laughs> the, the most toxic improvisers are usually the ones who have that toxic confidence. You know, where like they'll yeah. do an awful show and they'll walk off like they've done the best thing ever. <laughs> You're kind of like, well, did you not? see what the rest of us saw (laughs) yeah and the ones who are really overly confident and arrogant to me don't really last very long in improv they tend to they tend in my experience they tend to uh, bounce out of the system because they're just not the star it's very hard to be the star in a good improv school um yeah well it kind of defeats the purpose of improv yeah exactly Mm -hmm. you're uh, to quote uh Dave Pasquese, you know, you're not doing your job right if you're getting all the attention. You know, it should be all Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, that's um, wonderful. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's such an important thing. And it, it can get lost in improv quite mm-hmm. easily. And I think that's a discipline that you have to maintain. Uh, because yes. Because it, 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 it's such an adrenaline rush. You know, you're on stage. You're just saying the first thing that comes to your head. You're reacting, all that. You know what I mean? And if you're getting a buzz from the audience, it's so easy to fall into that trap of, oh my God, I'm killing this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's almost why it's it's its own teacher. You know, I think a lot of people who find improv almost feel like they've found some sort of spirituality. Or, you know, you feel like when you teach, I don't know how much teaching you've done, but I often feel like Yoda when I'm teaching because I say crazy things like, in order to be good, one must not ever want to be good. <laughs> Please tell me you say it like that as well. <laughs> I know. I wish I did. I probably do. Um, and don't realize it. But yeah, it's that It's that kind of weird paradox where um, you have to learn a couple of life skills. And I, I find as a teacher, the people who don't think they're very good, um, the people who are doing it because they love it and they really want to make everyone look great and they're not trying to get it right. They tend to be amazing improvisers. And at some point, everyone, I think, needs to learn the lesson. Uh, in order to do this right, you have to find the joy in it. And if you don't find the joy, you're, you're going to bounce out at some point. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And w- which teachers stood out to you? I mean, you mentioned Mindy Sterling. Was there any other teachers or was she the one that had the biggest impact on you when you were kind of coming through the ranks? I feel like she impacted me the most because I saw... I, I guess I, I was so inspired by her ability to be these different characters to such a strong degree. Like she was so committed as a character performer that she disappeared. There was no Mindy Sterling, you know, her ego wasn't on stage. She would just evaporate into a character and she did whatever was needed for the scene. Wow. And yet she, I couldn't take my eyes off her. I mean, the audiences couldn't take their eyes off her. Um, And the other thing that I really learned from her and loved about her is she was so fearless about, like she was unapologetic about who she was. She never gave you the impression that she needed to be more than who she was. And so the reason why that impacted me is she did not know anything and probably still doesn't know anything about 
um, current events. <laughs> she doesn't know if something is a country, if it's a war, if it's a president. Uh, she does not know things. And she is so, she's just like, look, that's just the way I am. That's the way my brain works. I don't know these things. <laughs> But she loved this one improv game in a, in the show with a paying public where she was the press secretary. Oh and my we God, would all amazing. throw questions at her. I know. And she loved how much she didn't know about things. And I think to a Midwest, because I'm from the Midwest of America, this Midwest sort of perfectionist, probably everyone needs to, everyone probably feels that way, where you, you, you need to be the one that knows the most in the room to to win um being smart is the best thing knowing everything is the best thing and she just showed how much delight you could have with just being who you were and there's no problem oh yeah i mean if you've got improvisers on stage and one of them doesn't know about something like i saw one where a guy was meant to be a doctor and they Uh said what's your discipline and he said i'm a skin doctor And they said, yeah, but what's, what's that called? <laughs> he clearly had no idea. And they just messed with him for like five minutes. And the audience was in hysterics. And it was yes. just so fun to watch, you know? And it's, it was, yes. and when it's, it's not mean spirited. Do you know what I mean? Like you can tell all right. these guys really like each other on stage, but right, they're just right. poking fun out of this guy. And that's, that's pure joy in itself, you know? It but, is, uh, it is. But that she sounds like kind of the, the dream person to watch because it sounds like she was a, dream. a ball on stage. Yeah, she really impacted a whole generation of groundlings. I mean, I think almost anybody who you could list off as a famous groundling really owes it to people like her who both taught and performed. Because you learn by watching after a while. You you know, doing is one part, but you really have to see it in action. And I think people like her are really... um, yeah, they're teachers in there just performing. Um, I had Gr- Kathy Griffin as my writing teacher. Wow. I know. She was about to become famous, so I might have been the only class she ever had as a a writing class. Oh, um, that was but handy. She was really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, she was wonderful. She just... Um, and what I really appreciated about the Groundling program and anyone who might be listening to this who feels like, oh, gosh, I'd love to learn how to write comedy, but I don't know how. I just improvise. Um, they really showed the link between improv and writing. And basically improvisers are writing on their feet all the time. And there's some very practical things you can do. Like the writing program is not a, a book that you read that tells you how to write. You just get up on stage and you start doing stuff and you start to see how it can translate into a sketch or a monologue. Wow. So it's, it's very like Second City where improv is a tool in order to create content for sketches. I think so. Very wow. much so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And then the Groundlings is obviously a character-based school, and the, and there's some background on that. I don't know how interested you are in that, but I'm happy to share what I understand about that. Oh, but no, I was I literally think, just about to ask you, so yeah, go, go Oh, nuts. there we go. We're psychic <laughs> together, Sean. Great um, minds. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, so the Groundlings really brought character to the game, maybe unlike any other school, I think. Um, and the school that I started in New York was sort of in that, it, it, to carry that torch forward, because I think character improv is so amazing, and I know that's how we met, mm-hmm. um, learning character improv. And I know Second City, I think, has, as far as I, my understanding of it is, it's a little maybe more politically bent or, um, you know, sat- satire. I mean, they're geniuses in so, so many formats, but I think they kind of are more of a, a maybe a commentary sometimes. Their, their stuff seems like it's commentary. Well, a lot of the stuff I've seen would be, that would be a fair way to describe it. You know, it'd be a kind of a narrative of what's going on 
in America yes. or in the world. And there'd be kind of a mixture of, you know, obviously sketches and there'd be some musical sketches and that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. And the book Improv Nation, I think, does a really great job of explaining sort of how they came about and why that seems to be their 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 strength. But of course, so many amazing character performers like SCTV came out of Second yeah. City, obviously, and their gene, you know, that generation was just genius as a character. But I think for the most part, the groundlings just doubles down on who is it that's in the scene and doesn't really require anything else to make it to fuel it um and that came from gary austin who started the groundlings and he uh got to watch people like del close and all these amazing people come through los angeles and um they were going to continue up to san francisco after a while and he was like nah i think i'm going to stay in la and, and try to start something here Why? and yeah, it's thank God he did. And he had a theater background, which is why if you've ever been to the Groundlings Theater, or if you haven't been, um, it's red cushion seating like a theater. There's no tables. There's no oh, drinking allowed. Really? It's very theatrical. And that's because I think he, he, you know, that was his training is this is a theater. And we all costume and wig our characters when we do sketches. And even some of our improv characters, if we've worked on them for a while, they're called structured improvs, at least at the Groundlings. And that's where it's the same character every week, but the suggestions are different. Oh, cool. And they're all costumed and wigged. And and we did that because um, he just thought, well, if you're going to really embody this character, you need to make it a very believable person. Got you. So it's all about, you need to anchor your character. So it can't be just this bizarre, crazy character. It has to be grounded in reality, but you can obviously heighten them. Is that kind of the focus? Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, Jennifer Coolidge was a groundling and she was one of the people that I saw push the envelope the most of like, this is the most batshit crazy person I've ever seen. And I totally I believe her, her, I've stood behind her line. I just, you know, she knew how to bridge that gap. But for the most part, it just meant if I'm standing there with no wig and makeup and costume, you're just going to see me. But if I get to start to play with all those dimensions of a character, it just really embodies who this person is even more. And I can't tell you going wig shopping is still one of my favorite things of all time, because (laughs) if you imagine a character that you're going to inhabit for a run of a show, four months, you know, you just know there's the, there's this perfect haircut out there somewhere. There's an exact wig of who this woman is and I'm going to find it or make it. Wow. So you develop a character and then you go out and get the pieces. Would you like sketch out what the character looks like or would you go shopping and say, oh my God, I can totally see so-and-so with that wig. I can totally see so-and-so in this blouse and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm sure everyone does it a little different. I And I, I think Amazon has really helped because you can go online <laughs> yeah. and just look through millions of wigs. But uh, in my day, uh, we used to go to you know, discount wig shops and go thrift shopping. And sometimes, you know, our discount, we have like Ross Dress for Less or TJ Maxx. You could get these great, you know, polyester business suits and things. But I think you have in your mind roughly what they look like. And then when you see it on a rack, you just go, oh yeah, that's exactly what they'd wear. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really fun. And I don't know if this is the case when you did it, but my understanding is when you, in order to graduate at Groundlings, you have to walk onto the stage as a character, 
And then there's a door at the back of the stage. You have to go through the door and enter again as a completely new character and do that three times. And then it has to be convincing characters in order to pass. Is that right? Yeah, that's the um, that's the character level. That's the second level of the school. And, uh, and did it's you have a, to do that? Yeah, it's a tradition that's been there since, I think, since the beginning. And it, it is called Five Through the Door. And <laughs> so it's five. A, it's it was five when I went through. Um, that maybe it's intense. Was it tough? Well, yes and no. I mean, if you spend twelve classes developing different characters and finding different prompts for them, people you know, adjectives, pictures, um, changing your face, you know, you start to feel. Like, oh, okay, I have two or three people here I could play that aren't just me. And then, you know, when we did it again, there was not as much pressure. So it was a lot more fun than it was like, oh, God, I got to pass this level. <laughs> but you just kind of got excited to be like, oh, I get to create five really interesting people. Um, and then as a teacher of it, you can see how it really helps you distinguish who is really understanding what a character is and who just thinks it's still an accent or, um, is putting on a funny face but doesn't feel like they're a different person yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely, because there is a difference. I mean, uh, you know, if you watch characters on stage or in film, there's always a difference of someone who's just putting it on and there's someone who is that character yes like it's like gary oldman's a great example i mean you you can't even name half the films he's in because you don't even recognize him when he's doing different characters so true it's so true and you know you look at key and peel even and they have such a mastery and i think even one of them or both of them studied at the groundlings i can't remember if that's totally true but i feel like at least one of them i thought they came from second city i didn't realize they, they did the groundlings as well I feel like they did. I might have my facts wrong, but um, I feel like for a little bit, the, uh, that makes sense. One of, though. That one makes of so them studied. Sense. Yeah, um, it might be Keegan Michael Key, but anyway, it's uh, it, it, you can kind of see when somebody really understands character, and it's it's not a critique if somebody doesn't get it, and that's part of why I think schools like the Groundlings sometimes can get a bad rap because at some point when someone just doesn't understand character improv enough or they just prefer to be more in control of the scene. They want to write the scene. They have really clever ideas, but they aren't willing to disappear into a character. You know, at some point you just have to say to them, like, this is just not the school for you. Luckily now there's a million options. And so it doesn't have to be the end of their improv career. But I think for what the growlings are trying to do and, distinguish themselves as um at some point you need to be able to see that this person can disappear into a character yeah and with the five that you do do they all have to be completely different from each other so if you're doing an abrasive character who's very intense do you have to would you automatically have to do a very polar opposite to that or yeah you just have to you yes you do um and it's probably maybe sounds more intimidating than it actually is like if everybody could probably do like a character based on their parents there's a there's are two people right there that are different mm. you know you you find a picture of somebody who's a little strange you you think of an opposite the way that somebody would describe you you just pick an opposite trait so if you're very friendly and outgoing you know what would it be like to be somebody who's a little abrasive and kind of introverted and there's another character and and really you start to see that there's characters everywhere um and it's just how much time do you spend in their skin 
behaving as them so that you start to trust it. Cause I think that's the biggest thing. And I don't know if that was your experience in, in the week that we were together, but it's the trusting that you can play somebody else and let them let that character actually do a lot of the work. Um, that to me is the hardest part as a teacher is getting that person to trust that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, obviously you can get into your head very quickly, you know, and you can kind of start doubting yourself and all that stuff. And that obviously is counterintuitive. Yes, exactly. And are you a big people watcher? Like, is that something you consciously do or is it something you've kind of always done? You know, I don't, I guess so. I'm not a big, like, sit down and watch. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I guess if you are, you don't know that you are. I find people fascinating and I like people and I like trying to figure out what makes people tick. So maybe so. I, I you know, movies, TV, uh, when you're watching a character and you're like, that's not a real person. Nobody, that person would never do that. That makes me really mad <laughs> when a I, character's I, written so badly. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, Big Bang Theory, for example. This <laughs> is a perfect oh, one. Can't just, watch it. Oh, me too. It's horrible because, and it's, it's everything. It's, you know, that was comedy like 40 years ago, but thankfully we've moved on <laughs> since then. It's a bit more nuanced now, I think. Yes. But, but yeah, I, I totally get you. But I, I imagine coming from a sociology background, surely getting into the psyche of characters must be easier for you, having had that you know training and that kind of background. I guess so. I think there. I think there's if there's not a study of it, there's got to at least be an interest in it. Mm. Um, because yeah, I think I think there's probably some weird uh, Venn diagram, which is my favorite. I love Venn diagrams. Uh, I bet there's a Venn diagram of what makes a really good improviser. And I bet it has to do with some sort of interest or, or study of people's psychology and emotional life and probably a lot of empathy. I bet improvisers have to be empathetic Yeah, because yeah, if you're trying to become somebody that you've never been before, in a scene like the skin doctor you were talking about or all the other crazy scenes that we've ever done. Right. And it's like, yeah. how do you know how to be that person? There's some, there's some knowledge or some intelligence there. That's, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, bit of a perception as well. Like uh, I find most, most of the great improvisers I've ever seen are just remarkably perceptive. You know, they pick mm. up on stuff very, very quickly. Mm. And, you know, I, I, feel, I feel like some people do that naturally. Like, my family, for example, if they're telling a story, they don't just say what happened. They'll actually, you know, become the people they were interacting <laughs> with. Do you know what I mean? So That's great. Do, yeah. And it's, I think it's an Irish thing where, you know, they'll do the voice or they'll do like the way their face is or they'll do the uh -huh. way they sit and all that. And, yeah. you know, and I, I think that's a, that's a big kind of physical aspect of storytelling that is perfect for improv you know what I mean because it's, that's so true it's all there you know what I mean that like you can just see the whole story happening in front of you through voice physicality as right. well as what you're saying right right um, I'd be curious like how did you how did you know that improv was your thing what was the oh uh I did it an immersive show and it was probably my role was only like 30% scripted. So mm. the rest of it was just, you know, reacting to the audience and interacting with the audience in character. And I absolutely loved it because I took the time to think about who, you know, who my character was. And once I did that, 
I found it easier to speak, you know, as the character. Right. And um, after doing that and having so much fun, I read about a lot of character comedians that I really liked. And funnily enough, Will Ferrell was one of them. And I read about the Groundlings and I read about Second City and I read about IO. And I, I went to see an improv show and it just blew my mind. And then I started mm. doing some courses and I was just absolutely hooked from then on and just never really looked back, you know? Uh, fabulous. Well, what's really cool about what you're saying is that experience where you embodied the character and 30% of it was scripted. I mean, in a way, that's what that character level at the Groundlings does. It makes you inhabit a character that you know just enough about. You kind of have their skeleton and then everything else you make up in the spot. I mean, that that's really cool because that's exactly what character improv makes you do. You just have to condense the time over time. Yeah. So is it like you do a monologue as the character for like a few minutes? Or is it yeah, yeah. questions? Yeah. In the, in the program, at least when I was teaching there, um, you know, you get... And, and even in Improvolution, which is my school, you know, you have... There's probably only a handful of ways to teach character improv and and one of them would be to give people time to think as that character so you get them to write either like a dating profile (laughs) or you get them to write you know what they would say if they met somebody at a party how would they introduce themselves and Ah. you know you start to let them spend a little bit of time in their skin until they like you did start to feel like that person and think like that person. And then you can kind of throw them in any situation and they should know roughly how they should react. You know, they'll have, they'll have a sense then. Yeah. They'll have that point of view, like that lens in which they see the world as that That's character. right. That's so, right. Yeah. It's like in an improv scene, you know, once you have that, everything is so much easier because you know how that character is going to react to pretty much anything. That's right. That's right. And, and um, one of the things that really helped me and helps me teach, and I think we did this when we worked together, uh, I call it a spine line, and I don't know where that came from, but it's this kind of, it's this mantra, it's this thing that you live your life by, it's your deepest belief, um, that's sort of, un- it's unchanging. Mm-hmm. And and once you plug into that, either consciously or unconsciously, sometimes you know it without knowing it, um, you you start to feel like this thing that you don't have to worry about anymore because you start to feel like that character. So you might feel like, you know, the universe is always giving me gifts. And once you plug into that sort of orientation, that philosophy, that thinking, like you were saying, that point of view, uh, once that clicks and you, and you, to me, it's a feeling. Mm. Um, and for different people, maybe it's a, it's a concept, but I have to feel that way. Once I know that, I don't think about it anymore, but I know exactly how I'm going to respond all the time. Why? And just to get an idea. So if you're going on stage as a particular character, how do you get yourself to feel that way? Do you have like, once you put the outfit on, you start feeling like the character or is it like a a mantra that you say, or how do you kind of access that? Um, it's a great question. It actually depends on the situation. So like at the Groundlings, if it was a character that I was working on and it was like a structured improv, mm. um, putting on the costume and getting to play her week after week, I would just, I would know it. I would feel it. I ha- I would have found the thing that's kind of clicks for her. Um, if it's in a show, obviously there's no time to costume it. Um, me, it's sort of a 360 
experience. So sometimes I pick a character by just changing my face and my voice. <laughs> and I start to feel, because it's very hard to feel like yourself if yeah. you don't look and stand like yourself. You know, there's that body-mind connection thing. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll just start a scene and I'll change my face and my voice. And before I know it, I start talking differently and it changes how I feel. And this I person already... <laughs> Yeah, you could do it that way. Um, other times, the suggestion that the audience gives you, for instance, if you are a, um, these are all people who are trying to uh, return items without a receipt at a store, you yeah. know, that's a type of person and that yeah. might give me a sense of an adjective that gives me a feeling and that person might be very victimized and very annoyed at the world and then that just turns into a thing. So it kind of doesn't really matter where it comes from. It just has to land in a place where I know how I feel about the world. Wow. That's fascinating. I love that. And, yeah. Uh, when you graduated the Groundlings, are people selected for house teams or, you know, how does it work then once you've kind of finished the program? Are people like cherry picked? Yeah, it's um it's very different than Second City. It's it's very different than a lot of models and it might have been um almost because it started backwards, meaning <laughs> Gary Austin collected a bunch of very talented people like Lorraine Newman was part of the, and wow. Tracy Newman who wrote the Ellen show. They were all original members and uh, Pee Wee Herman and Elvira and people <laughs> that maybe people in Ireland haven't heard of, but there just were a lot of people in the, in the early performing comedy world that happened to all be groundlings. And so he, he collected these people and sort of taught them improv and they all helped each other understand what it was and they would do shows. And then it was clear that people would come to the shows and say, I, I need to know how you did that. And so the school kind of was birthed, I think John Lovitz, actually, if I'm not mistaken, John Lovitz, who was on SNL, he helped create the school or was, was definitely part of it. Oh. Um, so I think they had to figure out how do you teach this thing that we all just experimented with for so long um so the end result was always to be in the company and they had to think of how big can the company be performing company um so they came up with 30 people i guess was the number and it's never changed um there's been a lot of talk about do we expand it but it just felt like 30 was good enough to be a number that you could perform a lot. You could take a couple shows off. You could help run the place. Um, and so the school is sort of, if you kind of back, whatever you call that term, um, create the school based on getting to the point where you become a company member. Then they had a junior company, which is that they call it the Sunday company. And you would perform every Sunday and you had to generate new material every week. Wow. And that lasted a year and a half. It's crazy, but you really get to see if you can generate, if you can keep doing what they need you to do, which is improvise and write character-based sketches. And um, then they, every, they every ask week. you every week. And it was really that. wild. Mm -hmm. That must have been so much pressure. You know, it was, and there was also nothing else that really mattered. Like, <laughs> it's like I had a job that paid the bills, but this was like... You just know, you know, when you find that thing that's like, this is my purpose, you just do it. But it was really fun. And, and I remember um, 
a friend of mine gave me, I don't know why I feel like sharing this, but maybe this will help somebody listening. But I remember at some point really feeling tapped out of ideas. Um, and you kind of hit this wall. And I remember a, a growling at the time gave me really great advice. They said, well, two things. Um, that wall just means you have a, you have to find another direction now. So don't just keep hitting your head against this wall. Turn around and look another direction. Why? And it was about expanding yourself. And so I really, I really liked that because I could relate to that feeling of I'm going to the same well for water and I'm getting the same thing over and over again, but I can turn around and go another way and get new ideas. And that, that was really awesome. And then the other thing that I got was I needed more input. You know, I was kind of living and breathing the groundlings. I was there all the time. I was seeing shows all the time. I was around other groundling students all the time. And I wasn't getting the world was it impacting me. The world was too small that I was in, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get you. So it was like, oh, go be around normal people and go do normal things and watch shows and read books and go out there. And suddenly I was like, oh, there's a million things. <laughs> <laughs> That's such good advice though, because you can you can very easily fall into that trap where you're just in that, you know, hamster wheel and you just you're running and running and running, and you're not really getting anywhere. But sometimes yeah. you just need to take a step back, take in the, the world around you and just kind of replenish those stocks, I, I suppose. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, as as your listeners are on their journey of of being an improviser, you know, there's this wonderful trap which is that you start writing and performing for each other and there becomes this hierarchy or this culture that you're all in and it's not bad or good. It's just, you know, it's that insider thing and you start um, basing yourself on how you fit into this very small culture's hierarchy and whatever makes certain people laugh is considered really clever and funny but none of us are normal. We're not the audience. We're not normal. And we shouldn't be basing all, we should take that with a grain of salt or a big grain of salt because um, in the end, that stuff really doesn't matter. Um, and and that's why I think it's really important to uh, keep your non-improv friends close at hand and don't take it all so seriously. And if you're not killing it in rehearsal, sometimes that is actually a good thing because the world's gotten a little small with it's no one's fault. Mm. Yeah, no, that's so, so true. And I think yeah. it's really important to kind of remind yourself of that because it's easy to forget that, you know, once you get deeper and deeper into performing and yes. you know, pressure starts creeping in and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and one of my, th Oh, do you, uh, after one you, thing that I, you. yeah, I just wanted to share this because, um, I'm actually, I uh, mentioned to you in an email, I'm, I've, I'm almost done with writing this book. I have to decide if I'm going to self-publish it. I probably will because everyone does it these days. But one of the things that I wanted to do when I was leaving the Groundlings as a teacher was um, give students a way to judge themselves on how they're doing. So kind of a self-assessment metrics or whatever you would call it because um as improv has expanded as is it's amazing i mean thank god every every place should have improv mm. um one of the downsides is just that there are a lot of people maybe teaching or coaching that 
don't have as much experience as others. And what you might start to get is what I have noticed a lot as I've traveled around and I got to meet people like you and just teach at other places is the, the, the teacher or the culture that you learn, you know, sort of has its blind spots mm. and you may be trained in a way that just means you made your teacher laugh. But that may not mean that you are doing what is considered really healthy, good improv. And what I noticed is I would be working with people who got trained in a very small culture and then they got on stage and they didn't understand why everyone hated playing with them is because they unconsciously learned maybe some bad rules or some unhelpful styles. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe because of my years of teaching, I could offer up some metrics or some helpful things to go, hey, this scene really worked. Why did it work? This scene really sucked. Why did it suck? And not leave it up to, oh, I got laughs from my class or I got laughs from my teacher, but I still don't know why. Why? That's, that's, that's actually really, really fascinating concept. I mean, and like with, with the metric, is it more where you think your strengths lie, where your weaknesses lie, how you can develop that, that kind of thing? Yeah, they're just, um, they're, they were, qual- I, I sat down one day and I was like, what qualities are present in myself or in a student when I feel like they're in the zone? Mm. And we all know what it's like to be in the zone and it's just effortless. Everything's flowing. It just lands. But sometimes you don't know why the hell that happened. And so what I was trying to do is break down what I understand to be present when that's happening as a way to go, oh, you know what? I was really listening in a way that I don't normally listen. Like I was 100% listening. I was so open. I had no other preconceived ideas or I wasn't judging or I was so relaxed or, you know, things like that where they seem really obvious at the time, but you can go back and look and go, oh, I wasn't relaxed at all. I was completely panicking. And so therefore X, Y, and Z happened. So I'm going to work on being just really relaxed and not trying to, you know, I, I call it um, the gift of being mediocre. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, and sometimes uh, I'll tell my students, please just aim for being about 50% to 60% today. And if you try to be more than that, you're going to fuck it up for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that gives everybody permission to just relax, you know, and, and when people are relaxed, improv just flows. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, right? putting pressure on improvisers oh, is the worst. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's terrifying. And what's your book called? Uh, I don't have a name yet, but it's going to be, because I don't know what to call it quite yet. I have to uh, get some input on that, but maybe I'll send it to you and give me your thoughts on it. Oh, if it makes I, I would sense love to, to read it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll oh. promote it on this. No problem at all. Whenever oh, you have amazing. title and everything, I'll absolutely. No problem at all. I'm fascinated you. to read that. No, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, uh, thank you. I'd love for you to weigh in a little bit, make sure it makes sense. <laughs> I don't know how much insight <laughs> I can provide, but I'm happy to. Don't worry. But, um, great, great. And obviously you performed at the Sunday Company and then you got into the main company at the Groundlings and you were performing with them for quite a few years. You know, how, how did that develop you as a performer? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um... <laughs> You're like, it strap yourself in, guys. <laughs> Get ready. It's going to be a long episode. Um, it was so great, Sean. I have to be honest. Like, um, 
performing in front of an audience is the greatest teacher. Um, because what, like I was saying, things start to kill in class that don't kill in front of an audience. And that was always fascinating to me. And things that sucked in pitch night would kill in front of an audience. And that was fascinating to me of like, what happened? Why did that happen? And you start to realize that th there's a lot more going on than what's on a page. Um, this is for sketch. Um, mm. For improv, you know, you wouldn't really you know, you could rehearse and you'd feel, I mean, to my experience, rehearsing was just like, what am I doing? I don't even know how to do this. This is terrible. And if the class wasn't laughing and they would be laughing at your scene partner, I just, I just always, and it wasn't for being mean. It was just something, it, it wasn't real. It was just, let's just work on some, some muscles and then nothing really matters till you're up on stage in that moment. And so rehearsals to me stopped being trying to prove that I knew how to do improv. Rehearsals was just, let's just remember the fun and let's try to find that zone again. And let's do exercises that help work whatever seems to be sloppy right now. Um, but there was no more proving yourself. Like proving yourself in rehearsals sort of stopped making sense to me. Um, because it didn't count. It just, it just was trying to give you really confidence. And I, I just remember at some point going through the program and realizing that the only thing I needed to do was just trust that I could do whatever it took to make the scene work. I had to stop worrying about myself. Um, I wasn't there to prove anything. Uh, improv was this living thing. It reminds me of what those monks would do. You know, they'd spend months creating these beautiful mandalas and then as soon as it was created they would destroy it because the point wasn't to create the thing it was the the creation of it that yeah. was important not the result kind of yeah like the process totally yeah so i'm kind of rambling here i don't know if i'm making a lot of sense but i think what i learned in the upper levels of a place like the groundlings i think what you learn is once you know everything you actually have to own everything you know and you have to be really humble about what you don't know. And you just have to know that the magic just happens on stage and you can recreate that magic by it being alive. Um, you can't do what you did last week. Um, and if you sucked in the scene before the improv scene, it's a fresh scene. Um, nothing, there's no, I used to think like, oh, I'm really off. Oh, I must be in a funk. Oh, there's something going on. And it, none of it's true you can shake all of it off and just be present and be supportive. And I learned all of that by the Sunday company. And you, you, you kind of come at it with, out of it with this weird confidence is you're completely enough who you are. Um, you're never going to get it great. You don't have to get it great. You just have to be present and care and give and listen and trust that little weird voice in you that's like say this weird crazy thing and you start to trust that voice and you're set wow so it's essentially not trying to you're not striving for perfection you're not striving to get it to nail it you're just being content in what you can bring 
and enjoying it and being present and that, like all the essentials of improv really it's like you yeah. learn it at the start you forget it and then you kind of master it <laughs> after a while you go full circle <laughs> you really do and and there probably are steps I'm imagining you have gone through them yourself also as an improviser there are steps yeah. where you are trying to get something right you kind of have to learn it so that you can unlearn it or something I'm sure there's there's a process there somewhere, but you do have to go to a school. You can't just jump up on stage and do it, unfortunately, or fortunately, because um, yeah, we've all we seen have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a learning, and then there's a putting it into practice. Wow. Yeah. And um, you created the longest running long form improv show in LA, uh, the Crazy Uncle Joe Show. Fantastic yeah. name. Yes. How did that, how did that get started? Um, so when, when I was at the groundlings, I, uh, was dating a guy who was a real improv addict. Uh, he was, it was, he was really into it and I really appreciated, uh, what he shared with me because he was like, you know, the groundlings isn't the only gig in town. I was like, it isn't. And he was like, no, there's these amazing teachers. Some of them were Second City, like Jeff Michowski and Jane Morris. Um, they, he was the director of, of Second City in Chicago for a while. And there were Ryan Stiles and all these guys had wow. come out to L.A. Yeah. And they were performing in some weird little beach bar during the day it was like you had to find these gurus around town and and my friend boyfriend um knew about all these teachers so you know the groundlings was like yeah go take elsewhere that's fine we don't care they weren't weird about it any any school that says oh you should only take class from us is just so missing the point um yeah, it's a bit of a red flag <laughs> Right. It's a bit of a red flag. Exactly. <laughs> we won't name names, but there are a few that do that. And yeah. I'm like, what the hell? Um, so I, we got, to, I got to study with all these amazing teachers with different perspectives and different, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's all the same, but the journey is so fun. And I just learned all these great methods and different ways of saying the same thing. And, and one of the teachers, um, Stan Wells, he, of course, he didn't invent it, but he really honed in on this long form, which was very different than the Groundlings had not ever delved into long form. They just did short form, which meant there was always a director. Okay, let me get these three people up and where do they work? And there, you were always very dependent on a director. It was the, the scene only had to live three or four minutes. Mm. Um, this guy was really experimenting, as was Jeff Michowski with... Um, almost like a theatrical ebb and flow and the scene had its own you could go for 40 minutes you could go for an hour there would be no director and the the performers themselves would sort of decide this feels like it's ending this theme I want to keep this theme going I want to keep this character going and it was you were very much in charge of your own show and I really loved that piece because it wasn't nonstop jokes you know it yeah. was it was more theatrical very truthful, I'd imagine, coming from Chicago, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Which I'm really, I'm all about that. Um, and so I, I kind of fell in love with it. And I, you know, the Groundlings only had um, one all improv show on a Thursday night, and then everything else was sketch for the most part. And I just felt like, God, we learn improv for so long. Why do we only have one designated improv show? That didn't make sense to me. And yeah. so I got together. Yeah. And, and the theater at that time 
was held, you took class on the stage, like any level one, level two, you were, you, you could take classes in an annex place, but you spend a lot of time taking class on stage. And so I brought to the company, I was like, Hey, what do you think about having another night of improv? And they were like, Oh, go for it. Let's see if it sticks. So I got together, right. They were just like, sure. That makes sense. I guess, you know, it's funny. Like if you don't, question something you just keep doing it the same way it's like oh yeah we could just not use the stage for class and use it for shows <laughs> i love that it's like the most obvious thing but until someone you know puts the finger on the button like, yeah that's mad. yeah it was I, really interesting so yeah anyway just to say i got together some of my favorite improvisers who were just they just embodied the spirit of this giving um making you know the most important thing is the scene you you can be a small part of that or a big part of it. It didn't matter. And we worked on this new format that I had learned elsewhere and everybody really loved it. And uh, I think our first show was ecstatic and amazing. And actually one of the performers who still does the show, Roy Jenkins, he weirdly kept a journal, like who journals anymore? But he kept a journal of that time. And we recently... <laughs> Exactly. Anyway, he has a journal from our first show and he was just like, the audience went wild and it was crazy and it had basically sold out ever since. So it was, wow. we clearly, we hit something, which was really nice. But that's amazing though, considering your audience at the Groundlings was so used to short form. So yeah. like, it was a bit of a gamble going for long form because, you know, it, it, you know, I know teams that do long form sets at uh, stand up clubs in London and they mm. have to do short form to begin with to bring the audience in because, you know, long form, it's, yeah, you have to be a very patient audience to engage with it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But, and um, what form did you do? We did, um, this is the form that Stan Wells and Jeff Michalski taught me, which was, um, it's kind of the opposite of the Herald. I remember learning the Herald from these second city guys. And I really, I'm going to make a lot of enemies right now. I really can't stand the Herald. I really hate it. Um, my understanding of the Herald, just to my defense was a lot of it was a teaching tool. Mm. Um, maybe not necessarily meant to be the only way to do a show, but the Herald was so constricting to me. And also I think if you're a character improviser, it's really counterintuitive because you have to pay attention and sort of, make scenes go in a certain way that as a character improviser, you just aren't trained to play that way. So I think it was doubly painful for someone like me going like, but what happened to that character? I don't care about the theme. Um, <laughs> I don't give a shit about the group game. I want to bring this character back. Yeah. I just don't, it, why do we have to bring it back to anything? Why about, why, what's this thing with going back? Let's just go forward. So um, this format is just three independent scenes with hopefully six or seven really interesting characters in them. And then anything that you like, you just pull it forward and it could be a character. It could be a location. We could keep all the scenes could all take place in a cafeteria and we just meet all the different people there. You just, you pick anything that seems bright and shiny to you and you just explore it. And it sort of takes on, it's kind of like a jazz improvisation. I think it just sort of, you just keep playing. There's no summing it up at the end. You just go, uh, you branch it out until the show's over, basically. That's cool. Uh, what was it called? Did it have a name, the form? Uh, it did not. Oh, it did why? not. Yeah. That sounds, that so, sounds great. 
it's very fun. Uh, we call it clap in, uh, clap in long form, but that. Oh really yeah, help. you did the clap in with us in London. That was it. Yeah, that was it. Oh yeah, that was brilliant. That was so much fun. Uh, it's a fun one, right? And yeah, I think and if it's you're pacey as well, it can be quick. Yeah. It can be slower. It's great. Exactly. It really is. Um, it's a reflection of the the people playing in it. So when I first did it, it was very slow. The scenes were a lot longer and juicier. Um, the guys who guys and women who do it now at the Groundlings, I think because the audience is also used to, like you're saying, the short form, it goes a little faster. Mm. Um, but you can make it go to the pace that you want, which is nice. Yeah, and I mean, if you have two quick scenes, you could have a, you know a slower scene and then mm-hmm. a quick scene. You know, you can mix it up a bit. Um, mix it up a bit, yeah. And uh, when did you get into teaching then? So like, uh, did you get into it right away after graduating or was it, did you perform for a while and thought, mm, I'll give, give this a whirl? Yeah, great. Another great question. Uh, <laughs> you're you good at this, it. Sean. Jeez. <laughs> Go figure. Much. You should do a podcast. Um, <laughs> make note, make note, everyone listening. <laughs> um Part of the deal in becoming a groundling at that time was, you know, you kind of had to give back and keep the business going. So you were very much encouraged with a double wink to teach. Um, So even the people who were like, I don't know if I want to, you kind of got the feeling of, well, you need to because we're a business. We got to keep the, you know, lights on. Yeah. Um, And so I did not think I really wanted to, but I took the first step and I mirrored or shadowed a, a teacher. Uh, actually, it was Mike McDonald, who was in Mad TV forever. He was uh, That's the guy really I learned. Familiar, that name? Yeah, you'd recognize him uh, easily. But he uh, he was a brilliant improviser. Oh my gosh. Um, especially of short form. That was his real forte but he uh he was the person that i learned how to teach from and a light went off and i was like oh my god i think i might like this almost better than performing because being able as you know to see people light up and get it and um i don't know improv just ignites something in people that they don't even know they have right and so yeah Especially when they do it for the first time ever and you see their minds oh. being blown. It's like such yeah. a rewarding moment. It is. It's so wonderful. But that's crazy to me though because you can see you're such a passionate improv teacher. To think that you're hesitant to get into that is quite mind-blowing. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Yeah. I, I know. It's funny me just telling you this. I'd kind of forgotten how I was very mediocre on the whole thing. <laughs> I don't know what lesson that is. I got got a few probation periods as a teacher. (laughs) Yeah, but it's great. And I think for people who want to give it a try or even coaching or something, I think if you've put in the time and you you can trans, I think that's the thing of of a good teacher that I so far feel I've been able to do is really translate your experience to students because, um, I think there's all different ways people learn. And when I started to click is when I could go, oh, I know why this rule is a rule. I know why this game exists because without it, you won't ever understand blank or blank. And that was really what Viola Spolin's gift was. I think she doesn't get enough credit as mm, I agree. Yeah. basically creating improv. Let's just call it what it is. Um, but her whole thing was, if you want someone to do something, just turn it into a game. Yeah, that's so true. And if you make it enjoyable, 
obviously people are going to be way more enthusiastic. So that makes perfect sense. You know what I mean? If you make it a chore, then obviously it's going to be a, right. a, a real dull process for everyone involved. But yeah. So I totally agree with that. But So as a teacher, like, did you immediately focus on anything that you've kind of carried through to now or did your focus develop over time on what you kind of zone in on as a teacher? I think it developed over time. Um, I remember feeling very, as, a, as I probably should have, uh, very, um, I, I followed the syllabus to a T and I, I was a good um, mimic that doesn't sound like it's flattering, but I knew how to teach exactly how they wanted me to teach. Oh, no, and I totally I f- get you. Yeah, because every yeah. school has their own style. Yeah. And then I remember going, okay, there's another layer here, though, which is what I understand. And so I would kind of um, zhuzh up what I was teaching and, and try to use different words and, and different um, ways into a game and maybe some different takeaways would pop up and I felt the confidence to go, oh, well, the purpose of this game is to do X, but I'm also noticing it teaches Y as a side effect. And so let's talk about that for a little bit. And and that's where I felt like it got really fun in realizing that these games and exercises do a lot and you can actually teach on a lot of different levels at the same time. And as you probably know, yes, and is a literal thing at the beginning, but then it's much more subtle and layered as you do it for a while. Yeah, yeah. Especially when people are playing to like the height of their intelligence and like there can be add more subtext to it and yeah. there's, there's more layers to the characters and that kind of thing. Exactly. And yes, and could actually look actually, actually what, what is that? <laughs> I was going to let that fly. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's an LA thing, ladies and gentlemen. Actually. Um, <laughs> but I remember when Yes And started to look, you could be, an, you could argue in Yes And, and you could have all these things that look contra- contrary happen. Um, cause I, I find that, I'll, that maybe one of the more frustrating things is when yes, sand is taken literally and a person betrays their character suddenly. Yeah. Um, that feels like a very challenging place. And I think it takes, uh, somebody who understands the layers of yes and to be able to manage those things. Yeah. Like it's, like to quote like TJ and Dave, you know, in their book, they have a, they have a chapter where it's called Fuck the Rules. <laughs> and like, you know, it does get to that point because they, they are there to point you in the right direction when you're training. But obviously in real life, we don't just agree blindly with everything that's said to us. So you're hardly going to do that in like truthful, grounded scenes, you know? Right. Exactly. Uh, they get to be intuitive, really. I mean, I think... I think at the end of the day, the people who figured out improv were doing something and then they learned how to put that on paper. But sometimes we teach the result, and it's, it's like the result just happens to be something that looks the certain way. And to get there, sure, you can obey some of these things, but it's not a hard and fast rule. Um, you know what I mean? Like sometimes things look like, for instance, the to me, the game or this idea of there being a pattern. Yeah. Um, I just feel like sometimes that was the result of yes ending something. Um, but then it became a way to get 
to a successful scene is to create a game, force a game to happen. Mm. But I know lots of scenes that work great that have no game at all. Um, so, so that to me, that's where, you know, you need to learn the rules. And then like they're saying, TJ and Dave are saying, then you need to break them a little bit in order to actually understand what they are. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And I think kind of going back to what you said before about, you know, training at other schools and, you know, having different teachers, you know, you add all the different bits and pieces to your toolkit and then mm. you, you pull out whatever you need then whatever, you know, whatever show you're doing, whatever scene you're doing, you know? And yes. Like the game can be useful, but even more useful is having, you know, a developed character, you know, like, so having that point of view, like we said earlier, and that lens in which you see the world, you know, to me, that's more useful than, oh, I've, I've got a game, so I'm just going to, you know, coast and everything else for the rest of the show, you know? <laughs> right, right, I had, exactly. I had a teacher once who said to us when we were coaching, um, sorry, a coach who said to, to us uh, one day at rehearsal, you know what, you don't need to worry about the who, what, and where, just as long as you have the game, you can just be two mates. Hmm. And I remember just kind of standing there thinking, what? <laughs> And I was like, that's, that doesn't sound right at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's kind of what you're up against at times, sadly. Yeah, yeah. I know. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> Fuck them. Yeah. But sometimes terrible teachers are great teachers because they do make you go, uh, no. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. <laughs> like, yes. that's what I don't want to do as a performer. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work at all. Thank you. <laughs> and um, how did you find the New York improv scene after being in LA when you were setting up Improvolution? Well, uh, it was pretty um, scarce. The, I think really? UCB had, yeah, UCB had just been around very, very b- briefly. Um, and they were Chicago style. Mm. And then Gotham, which was is no longer, sadly, it was set up by Groundlings, who went out there in the 80s. Oh. Um, but they didn't really have a lot of resources. They didn't have their top shelf teachers because, and I think that's the hardest thing about any program, even like Second City that tries to expand is you have to send your, you've got to send some version of your A team Mm. um, because otherwise it just can't hold up. That's been, that's my two cents. You can quote me there if you want or not, but the groundlings sent, uh, they couldn't really afford to send more than one or two people that were really passionate about making it happen. And just over time, it just didn't hold up. And so they had a, a amicable divorce um, and they said, you can't call yourself Groundlings anymore. So they became Gotham. And uh, that was the only two in town that I knew of. I think there was some third thing that made themselves musical improv uh, on one of the far, I think far east. There was a place that just became a song improv place. Um, so when I got there, it felt kind of like the Wild West still. <laughs> and... I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I just felt like I wanted to kind of have a, a start over. That's a different podcast for a different day. But I was like, oh, I kind of want to start over and see what happens. And the only thing I missed was teaching. And so I went around town and put up little flyers, uh, growling style in New York. And luckily people knew what that meant. And within a couple of weeks, I had enough people for a class and then I had enough people for a second class and then I had enough people for a third class and then I thought oh shit I think I'm a school because now I gotta do levels (laughs) I guess this is happening 
That must have been exciting, though, at the same time. Obviously, it's pretty oh, daunting, but it, you know, it's exciting oh, setting it's up best. a brand new city and you know, kind of pitching your own tent. It was amazing. It really was. And what was so lovely is I didn't have this plan to build a school, so I wasn't stressed. I just thought, I'm going to teach this class on a Saturday. And then, oh, I do a Saturday and a Sunday. Oh, now I do a Thursday night, a Saturday. And it just was very organic. It almost felt like improv itself. You I just, just kept yes and being very present. <laughs> I was. I was. And what was so lovely is, you, you, you know, I found a, and still, they're still teachers for me now. I found a group of people that loved it and that the character piece spoke to them. And, um, they just, you know, as as improv does, it creates this beautiful community of people. And so, you know, pretty soon you have this network of lovely yes-anding people. They're the best people in the world, improvisers. And so we just all couldn't wait to be around each other. And it just sort of creates its own community very quickly. Amazing. And I yeah. suppose New York, to a certain extent, would be like L.A. Because there's obviously a lot of... Um acting schools and there's a lot of uh, programs there for performing and there was obviously a huge theater scene so there must yeah. have been a lot of performers that were looking to get you know add improv to their skill set you know it's a great point there were a lot more uh, ac- actors you're right um what was harder was that la is built because the whole city is in the biz so if you can imagine an entire city that just supports acting writing creating um having time free during the day is just normal like uh, i i was able to get a very good paying part-time job that allowed me to take classes during the day um new york is not that and so i did tons of night classes i mean it was all it was very hard to get a class going during the day so there were things like that that i found very interesting you had to have three or four jobs to make it in new york as people know it's a very tough city um and so that part was was a challenge but the performing level was quite high and also there were lots of spaces in new york lots of little theaters that you could rent and do shows um la has a lot less of that so that was the challenge here and uh trying to get improvolution la off the ground here is daunting in a different way because there just aren't little theaters that are dark a couple nights a week um in order to pay the rent you have to have a place that has shows constantly here. So it's every city sort of has its own chemistry and mm. you have to crack the code as I'm sure you're learning. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you'll have facilities that will be beneficial in one place and an issue in the other and that kind of yeah. thing. Like, yeah. Uh, like I was looking at places here to start doing classes and they, they're only open during the day. They're not open in the evening. Oh, <laughs> I feel like that's the exact go. opposite of every place I would have gone to in London. <laughs> so it's, it's exactly the same kind of experience you had. So yeah, I can totally relate, but that's mad. And did you find like the students similar in, in terms of how they performed or was there more of a passion in New York or in LA? Hmm. God, you're a really good interviewer. Um, <laughs> I never got this many confidence during an interview before. It's good though. You're making me work hard. It's good, uh, but I like it. It's um, let's see. In New York, I felt like the dedication and the seriousness was there, mm. um, but at the same time, New Yorkers live fast and hard, and they kind of do their thing and then they move on to the next thing, and so. Um, there was sort of a 
what people would kind of burn through the school really fast and they'd be like, now what? And in LA, it was a little bit more of, um, dedicating yourself to learning and wanting to take a lot of side classes. And in LA, it's kind of like a lifestyle. You're always Ah. learning and improving your craft in New York. There's just so many options and so many things to do. It felt a little bit like, um, now what? And so that was one thing. Um, in LA, people had, I think a much broader sense that you could a lot of scenes took place not in los angeles scenes could take place all over the country and in new york and i still make fun of my students to this day every scene takes place in fucking manhattan everyone in the scene is a new yorker there's no awareness of a world outside new york it just made me laugh very hard so i'd have to push that like no scenes about New York today, folks, everything has to be. And they'd be like, Oh shit. What else is out there? <laughs> I've never experienced that anywhere. <laughs> it's, classes. it's a New York thing. I think I really do. And you know, rightly so it's, you don't need much if you're in New York, you got it. You got everything around you. That is. So those are two though. things that come to mind. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you traveled throughout the U S and abroad doing uh, good girls aren't funny. You know, doing, yeah. uh, which is kind of more of a, a, a talk, like a seminar kind of thing. Um, you know, how did that get started? Um, so, as a female, uh, I was aware, as a female teacher, I think female teachers might feel this way. I don't know if it's true. I know I did. I had a um, almost like a spidey sense for my female s- students. You, you kind of just understand their challenges maybe a little bit more there's just a maybe a more of a connection in um maybe in a i don't even know what to break it down to uh i understand the language that women improvise in maybe faster than men i understand both but i just feel like as a woman i get women faster and so i noticed this weird thing that was starting to emerge as i taught longer at the groundlings, which was that women would get improv, um, faster, I'd say on the whole, they, they took to it very quickly. They understood it. They excelled at it very, 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 very quickly. Um, then something would happen around confidence and they would hit a wall that a lot of them didn't recover from. So Yeah, it was so strange. And I go into this in my talk, but I, as a third level teacher, so I became an upper upper level teacher after a couple of years and I was teaching the writing levels and a lot of students that I had taught in levels one and two, which were all about improv. And as you know, improv is all about the group and all about Mm. taking care of each other and community and blah, blah, blah. Level three, which um, is a little different than what you described as the five through the door but it's it's a similar kind of panicky thing which is you have to write a monologue and perform it on stage in front of an of you know you're in the theater you're in the famous groundlings theater and you're standing alone on stage doing a monologue that you wrote and in the back row are all the groundlings that have come that are gonna vote on you if you're gonna continue in the school oh jesus (laughs) are you already panicked yeah yeah So then you throw in, at least when I was going through the school, and I don't think it's changed a whole lot, 
it's changed a little, but not a whole lot. There's this level of female women's conditioning that has uh, been a real burden for a very long time. And I know men have their own challenges, but for a lot of women, um, there is this needing to be perfect and needing to get it right and being liked. And there's just sort of this layer of... um, doubting oneself and doubting one's instincts that improv really brings to the fore. And I just had noticed it for such a long time. And then in this writing level, I just felt women really backpedaling on their own instincts. And there were statistics to support it. So I I checked in with the school and there was some crazy number that more women, almost two thirds more women auditioned to be in the groundlings. but. Something crazy like 70% of the people who moved through the school were men. So women were dropping out like crazy. It was, it's some crazy statistic that over time has not changed. Um, There's ebbs and flows, but it wasn't like men weren't passing women intentionally. Actually, a lot of women were teachers. There was a mix of things, I think. Um, And one of the biggest ones to me was as a confidence piece. And so when I came to England, I noticed the same thing. And actually I had a school in Australia uh, that I went down to Australia two years ago and they were like, Hey, can you help us with this female thing that we read that you have talked about? We're having the exact same problems. Women are dropping out after the first level, even if they're great. So it was like this, right? It's this mystery. But as a male, maybe you've recognized it. Sort of a general sort of throwing oneself under the bus and really not standing behind your ideas. Or conversely, being so hyper-masculinized, like a certain personality of female improviser can get through the school, but they take on a very tough, aggressive, almost masculine quality that isn't very it isn't organic it doesn't always feel authentic sometimes it does but sometimes it's just almost overly sexual or overly tough and um i go into it so much more in my talk explaining why it is um but anyway i wanted to understand it more and so i started to do research and talk to different people and i read different books and i came across um a lot of um cultural conditioning that women get messaging from that I hadn't even put my attention on because as you know we've grown up at a time where we've been told we're equal and we can do whatever men can do and you know maybe a lot of the external barriers have at least it's been exposed where there has been inequalities and if somebody tells you you can't do something because you're a woman you can at least sue them now Um, but I think there's this internal landscape that we haven't touched yet and it's a lot more insidious and it's a lot harder to find and it's what I call the good girl and you're really rewarded for obeying her in culture and it is the antithesis of what you need to do to be an improviser and really a performer or just a generally confident woman (laughs) in my opinion and so you have to go against this thing that's gotten you through life And it feels very scary and dangerous and makes you sometimes almost feel crazy. And I battled it myself. And I give examples in my talk of of moments that I had to 
decide not to be a good girl in order to continue. And it can be very scary. And so I love to give the talk and I've heard it has done a lot for women. I still am in touch with women that have said it really shifted their thinking because it says, yeah. So it just says that there's a good girl in all of us, but it isn't the totality of who we are. And there's something else in there. That sounds fantastic, Holly. I mean, it's awful to hear those stats and, you know, that being the case. I mean, I think for myself, coming up in improv, I mean, obviously I performed in teams with a lot of different women and they were all fantastic performers. And Mm -hmm. I I was quite lucky. I had a lot of female teachers as well. And there were a lot of notable female improvisers in the London scene when I was kind of coming up. So I, I wasn't aware of, you know, female improvisers dropping out, you know, after a certain period or anything like that. But that's horrible if that's the case. And I mean, it's fantastic you're doing that talk and you're drawing more attention to that and, you know, encouraging and, you know, inspiring young female improvisers. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, I really, I feel very uh, lucky to have stumbled upon it and also been able to make sense of my own experience and then be able to share it with women that where it seems to make sense. And one of the coolest thing, because I, I really do believe this. I'm not just saying it. I think men improvisers are the most woke group of men around because there's just something in our natures um, that make us have to really respect each other. And if you don't, it's going to come out at some point and then you're not going to do well. And you either have to deal with it or you're going to get booted out in some form. And so I find you know, the men improvisers that I, that have attended the talk and that have heard about it are like, oh shit, I didn't know. And I want to be part of the solution. And what's really great is a lot of male teachers and especially the school in Australia, they were so fantastic. And they were like, hey, would you meet with our teaching staff and tell us what you've learned specifically how to teach to women? Because it sounds like there's a different way to teach to women. And I think there is, um, And I had a male teacher at the Groundlings say, you know what I got from your talk is um, in the beginning, uh, these are just, these are so disgustingly general statements. So please know that I know they're very general. Um, But he said, in general, I see that men need to learn to really listen and stop writing because the the maybe the male brain just needs to know a little bit more than the female brain i don't know or just culturally but he said men tend to learn around level two hey if i don't listen better i'm not going to make it through and so they learn how to listen and they really become fantastic um supportive players he said i've noticed that women have to learn to be more confident and they don't always because that's a very hard thing to teach someone to be more yeah. confident. And so that's what I really want to do. And I'm hopefully helping that needle move. And I think the male teachers that I've talked to understand that you might have to approach some women improvisers differently. Because if the, if the, if the Achilles heel is confidence, um, you, you could imagine you'd have to present stuff differently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, that's a really important thing to, to note then. And, you know, I obviously, I'd love to get you over here, uh, to do that talk at some point as well. It'd be fantastic. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. 
it's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you what advice you'd give to up and coming improvisers, but it sounds like you've kind of already said it. I mean, obviously yeah. if, if confidence is the issue with, you know, female improvisers in the early days, especially, um, that's something that, you know, is something that they should obviously be aware of and try and develop, you know, a bit more faith in themselves. And yeah. with men, it's just shut the fuck up and listen. <laughs> <laughs> These are life lessons too, by the way. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think I would say, you know, if you find yourself obsessed with needing to know and figure it out and are obsessed with this cool puzzle of a scene, just relax and let it be what it is. But I think in general, I would say to all improvisers, you know, if you've lost the joy in it, you're never going to get through it. It should be fun. Mm. You're never going to feel like you're doing good at it. And you probably shouldn't feel like you're doing good at it. Um, it, it just, it really is, it really is like a, 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 t- a teaching in and of itself. And I remember telling my students that I used to think that there was this line in the sand. And if I crossed that line, I'd forever be a good improviser. And oh, I was just chasing this line. And then I realized, oh, there's no line. Um, you'll never get on the other side of anything. It's a constant, just like you said, being present, wanting to do your best. I think curiosity and fascination are really great qualities to bring to every scene and just be fascinated in your partners and be fascinated in what they're saying and fascinated in what's coming up in yourself. And I just don't think that you can ever go wrong. Love that. So, so true. Yeah. And uh, here's one for you. What's your worst improv show and what did you learn from it? Oh no. <laughs> Is it that bad? Am I bringing up all oh, the demons now? <laughs> oh. God, let me think about it. I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> this is painful. This is a painful one. You ready? Yep, go for it. This Let is going to sound like I'm bragging, but it's really actually horrible. Oh, it's going to sound like you're bragging about an awful thing that happened to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You ready? Okay. Lay I on did me. an improv show once with Eddie Izzard, my hero. What? Yeah. What? How did yeah. that come about? Well, it's in my good girls talk because this is an example of when my good girl shit came up. But um, uh, everyone at the Groundlings knew that I was obsessed with Eddie Izzard. Obsessed. Obsessed. I think he's a genius. My goal one day, and if he's listening to your podcast, I just want to redo. All I want is a redo. I want to do an improv show with Eddie Izzard so bad because he brings so much joy to the universe. Um, but he was going to do this improv show and... And I was in New York at the time. And they're like, if you can fly back here, you get to do the show with Eddie Izzard. It's like, I'm on the plane in the morning. No problemo. So I flew all the way to LA and was so excited to do the show with him. And uh, we were backstage. The nicest guy in the world. So giving, so humble. So like, oh my God, I hope you guys will take care of me. We're like, Aww. what are you talking about? And so we get on stage <laughs> and this fear of fucking up and the pressure that we were talking about before Mm. and aware that I was on stage with an idol. And instead of just dialing back and being like, Oh my God, have fun and play. And it's not about you. It's about giving him a great experience and just have a blast. You're going to be fine. I, a strategy kicked in, which is 
the good girl strategy. I never figured it out till I did the talk, um, which was, you know, just be a little passive. Uh, don't initiate. Do what, you know, follow what others do. Um, just play it safe. Don't make mistakes. You'll be fine. So I did that version of improv, which we all know is not, you might as well not do improv. <laughs> you might as well have not gotten on the plane. Oh my God. And how did you but feel you know that, that feeling, right? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I had exactly the same experience. I did a 50 hour <gasps> improvathon once, uh, but I was only in it for six hours. Yeah. And, uh, it was with like a lot of well-known improvisers in London and I got so in my head and yep. I, whenever I wasn't on stage, I was beating myself up, up, up about being in my head. And then I was yep. in my head when I was on stage. It was a nightmare. Oh, so it's a similar thing. I mean, it'd be fun to talk about it more one day over drinks, but not now. But um, <laughs> <laughs> my version of it is I kind of left my body. I was kind of, I, I uh, and I do think it could be a, a, more of a female thing. I don't know for sure, but I feel like you get a little unpresent. You get a little out of your body and you you get foggy. And so I kind of just, the, the totality of me was not there. I was not present. And I was just some sort of smiling, pleasant version of me that was oh. a mediocre improviser. And so after the show was over, I just kind of slowly came out of this fog and I really felt awful like it was pretty bad and my conclusion at the time was well you just showed yourself how good an improviser you are like when it really counts you can't do it so you'll you'll always be a mediocre improviser okay like that literally was all yeah that's the only conclusion I could draw because I didn't understand what what I did and why I did it and then slowly I began to understand what it was and now I have a healthy fuck it attitude which i think everyone needs to have to mm-hmm. be an improviser right yeah big time but that was that oh horrible story but eddie Izzard, one day on the stage again we're gonna do it i just have a feeling <laughs> and you we do it kill it <laughs> we will make a mess of it but it'll be so fun yeah teacher said to me once uh okay guys i want you to either nail it or fail spectacularly <laughs> and, oh. and i love that i always say that to any students i have because <laughs> i just yes. think it's the best advice before you go on stage it's wonderful that's so true what's the best improv show you've ever seen oh oh hold on a second Hold on a second. Um, you know, it's funny because it's so tied into me learning about improv. Um, I've never seen TJ and Dave, and I would really? love to see them. Yeah, I've never seen them. I've missed them every time they've come to the city when they were in New York. Uh, but I hear they're wonderful. Yeah, um, incredible. I, oh, I feel like... Um, I, I can't really answer that. Isn't that terrible? I, I've been a part, I've been able, I've been in a show and just been off to the sides, laughing my ass off at what's happening on stage so many times. I can't say that there's a best. I just have seen so much great improv. Oh, you know, I think the best team I've ever seen is a team called the Transformers. Great and name. they were here in LA. And um, like Jay Kogan, who I think was was one of the original creators of the Simpsons. Why? Uh, John Stark, who created Ellen, the Ellen show. There was some amazing 
guys who had improv as a background that just for fun met every week and did this show. And um, it was a long form show and they were called the transformers because they would transform the scenes with a physical repetition. So when one scene was over, if one guy was sort of scratching his forehead, they would all start to scratch their forehead and then they would like morph that into a gesture and then they'd have to justify that gesture to start a new scene. Cool. And they would just transform in and out of scenes, but they all they all wound up making sense of each other. They would go in and out. They'd recall. It was like a Monty Python sketch. I've never seen anything like it. I think they were consistently mind blowing. Why? Where were they? What was their background? Were they Chicago or where were they? No, they were um, all. A lot of them Groundling. Some of them Chicago. Uh, actually, you're right. There was some Second City, but they all were. Uh, most of them trained in the Groundlings. Actually, why? That but then like they incredible. left the Groundlings. Yeah, it was consistently amazing why yeah and what uh, about you what did you see yeah uh tj and dave definitely comes to mind uh cook county social club Uh, oh yeah uh revolver um from io uh in london i mean there's quite a few um, incredible teams like ostentatious showstoppers um Oh, uh, Ostentatious is amazing too. You're right. They're pretty amazing. Uh, I saw, um, actually, I saw a really good show in London. It was The Playground. Did you ever play with The Playground when you were I in love The Playground. Oh, it's such a fun night. Um, uh, who was in time? It was Holly Laurent was in time. Oh my God. And wow. She's amazing. Yeah. And I've had her on the podcast. She's such a lovely improviser as well. Like, yeah. She's a lovely yeah. person. But yeah. uh, she did a scene with Ruth Bratt from Showstoppers and it was probably one of the best improv scenes I've ever seen in my life. Like, oh and it was, my God. And it was really patient and really truthful, but it was absolutely hilarious as well. And it was just, I, you could just learn so much from just watching that one scene, you know? Ugh, ugh. Uh, and uh, what's the other? Oh, another one that comes to mind. I saw Messing with a Friend and it was the 10th anniversary. And it was Oh, I don't su- know that group. I don't uh, know them. So it's Susan Messing does uh, a show called Messing with a Friend oh, where she, she does yeah, just yeah. Uh, like an hour show with a guest improviser. And it's just them doing two prov. And it's mm. always great. But for the anniversary, she did it with TJ Jagodowski from TJ and Dave. And it was incredible. It was wow. it was absolutely insane, but like in the best way. You know? That's wonderful. Oh, I love it. I love it. And the thing is, if you recorded any of them and watched them or showed them to somebody later, it just would never, right? You have to be there. That's yeah, the best part of it, it all. It never translates well on camera. No, it's so no. frustrating as well because you can never capture it. But, I know. But that's why I think it's so great because it can never be commodified. You can't, you can't record it. You have to fucking be there or you have yeah. to hear about it later. It's like, so I love that about it. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a, when you see a great film, you don't remember the plot. You don't remember the di- You remember the moments. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Holly, thank you so much for coming on today. That was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Bravo, Sean. <laughs> really nice. Clap it out. Yeah, that was great. This was so fun. Thank you. No, no, it was fantastic. And is, is there anything you want to promote at the moment? Are you doing classes on Zoom or are you doing any shows that you'd like to promote? Um, such a great question. Uh, I'm teaching through, I keep I keep saying that, but it's true. Uh, I um, My improv school is uh, online, improvolution.org. Um, there's a weird improvolution.com that is just a strange 
fist in the air and we've never been able to figure out who owns it and it's been there since i started the school 20 years ago and uh if you own improvolution.com let me know if you want to sell it because you've had the same picture up there forever uh but it's improvolution.org and we have lots of classes and i'm about to launch uh relaunch a professional track right now it's uh it's been very much geared towards building community and developing people's skills for life and for business and that's going to keep going you know if people want to learn improv but they don't necessarily want to have it be a career um we have tons of classes for that but i'm going to be introducing the uh professional track again which is another version of character improv and then that's what we're going to have in LA and maybe other places too who knows great maybe a little branch in Ireland at some point oh would love it <laughs> sister schools we could have sister schools this yes. is it yeah well yeah. Uh, Holly best of luck with the classes and best of luck with the book really excited to hear uh, how that goes when it comes out thank you and obviously thank I'll you. here but look after I yourself be safe yeah, and uh, hopefully too. see you in the not too distant future I really hope so. Yes, I have a feeling. This upcoming year, lots of travel. (laughs) Fantastic. Love that. Well, Holly, look after yourself. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Sean. Bye, everyone. Aha! Mad about Holly. She's so, so lovely. And it was so interesting to talk with her. Definitely check out the classes in Provolution. I can't recommend Holly enough as a teacher. She's absolutely brilliant. And definitely check out Holly's talks, Good Girls Aren't Funny. I've heard nothing but good things about them. And like what she described, I think it's so worthwhile for every improviser to check them out and learn a bit more. Also, keep an eye out for Holly's book. Uh, I got to read a bit of it, and it is so inspiring for character performers and improvisers. There were so many great tips and ways to access characters. Really, really recommend it. Check it out, guys, when it comes out. Now, next week, I'm talking with Kaisa Coco Palmer from Improv Helsinki. She's so much fun and so insightful about improv. So it was so lovely chatting with her and hearing about her own experiences. And our paths have randomly crossed at one point and neither of us realized it until we did the interview. So that was fun. Well, that's it for this week, guys. Thanks so much for listening. As always, big shout out to Adam Deveni, sound tech extraordinaire, and to Crowander for the theme music Space Fun. Have a great week, everybody. See you soon. Bye.